Well, good evening. I want to first of all say thank you to everyone who complimented the lesson this morning. It's not often that people say thank you for a lesson on giving. So thank you for that. I still contend the best time to give a lesson on giving is when giving is good. Second thing I would say is I appreciate the guys organizing the golf event. I would have appreciated it more about three or four months ago. My dentist called me and said, hey, I'm going to play golf. Why don't you join me? And so I went. I played nine holes. He was playing 18. At the ninth hole, I got in my car. I went home. True story. Put my golf clubs on Facebook Marketplace and sold them for $75. Uh, no more golf for me. I'm done. But you guys have fun. How do you respond to a no? Most of us don't like to be told no. When we get right down to it, if we're honest, we don't like to be told no. You hear in our culture, don't take no for an answer. We hear no a lot, though, in a variety of ways. On a variety of fronts, we hear no. Maybe at your job, you come up with good ideas and your boss says no every time, and you know what you do? You either take it or you say, you know what, I'll go find a job where they appreciate my vision and they value my intellect. Maybe you're told no at home as a, as a teenager. How do you respond? Maybe, I don't know, you stomp, you, you pout, you sulk, you leave the room. How do you respond to no at church? Well, you stomp, you pout, you sulk, you leave the room, right? When it comes to no, we don't like to hear it very often. How do we respond to a divine no? How do we respond when God says no? Imagine, if you will, a couple who has been trying hard to have a child. They pray to God that he bless them with a child. And sure enough, after many, many years of waiting, they, they have that first child. And that child is growing and developing, and they love their child. And at five years old, they learn that he has leukemia. And they pray and pray that he beats it. God, please heal our son. They pray for the doctors. They pray that the treatment works. And after a long battle, the child dies. Or what about the young lady that, that wants to get married? She wants so badly to spend the rest of her life with someone who loves her and protects her and supports her. And she prays and prays that God give her a mate that will help lead her spiritually, that she can share the rest of her life with. But as she grows older and older she realizes that that prayer is probably not going to be answered. Or, a woman's husband is diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And she watches him as he withers away and she prays that he gets better, but she realizes after some time and talking to the doctors, he's not going to get better. He's not going to, he's not going to get well. And so she prays that he go quickly because that can be a long, drawn-out illness that's really hard to watch. She prays and prays that God take him quickly, and yet he lingers and lingers for many months. How do you respond to no? How do you respond when it seems that God doesn't care? I mean, I know that, that it seems logical that God would not answer a prayer for money or for, you know, maybe long life or something like that, but surely God hears these prayers. Why wouldn't God answer these prayers? Because these aren't unreasonable prayers. How could God say no to these? How do you respond when God says no? I want you to look at a, 
a passage of Scripture with me tonight that I hope will bring some clarity in how we should respond. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll look at some parallel passages, but 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's just read the entire context here, starting in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it reads, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to, the Nathan, to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to, to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel." I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me whom he commits when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. You know, this was a time in, in David's life when everything was actually good. He could kick back and relax a little bit. I mean, the kingdoms had become united under David, and he was able to enjoy the fruit of his labor. There was finally peace after many years of war. And so since things were good, David felt that it was right in his heart to build a house for God. I mean, why should he be living in a house of cedar while God dwells in a tent? So his intentions were good, and they were right. And Nathan says, go and do it. Because even Nathan, on the surface, that seemed right and good. Why wouldn't you do this? I mean, David had the best of intentions. A man after God's own heart. And yet, God steps in and tells him, No. No, you're not going to build me a house. How do you respond when God says no? 1 Chronicles 17, 3-5 is a parallel passage, and it reads like this. It says, it came about the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, thus says the Lord, You shall not build a house for me to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. It seems that David only had the highest regard for God and for wanting to build him a house. 
His motives do not seem selfish at all. His heart was overflowing with gratitude. He just wanted to show his gratitude in some way. It seemed like the only right thing to do. But God sometimes says no, even to things that seem to be right and good, at least from our perspective. And the, answer, and the question becomes why? Why would God deny something that seemed right and good when someone has good intentions? Why would, why would he deny David's request with a flat no? Later it seems that he denied the request because David was a man of bloodshed, but we don't get that answer here. So as we're just reading this in context, you kind of ask the question, why? Why get a no from God here? What does it mean? And how should we respond when our prayer maybe isn't answered in the way that we think it should? How do we respond when God says no, when we want so badly for him to say yes? And I think there's a few things that we need to get straight from the very beginning. Number one, my will and God's will may be two different things. That is a fact, and we just need to accept that, and our life will be a whole lot easier. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul prayed that this mysterious thorn in the flesh be removed from him. Paul felt that he would be more effective, that he could accomplish more in his work for the kingdom if this thorn in the flesh were removed from him. What was it? Well, some people think it was eyesight, bad eyesight. Some think it was the Judaizing teachers. Whatever it was, Paul felt that he was greatly hindered in his work. So he prayed three times that this thorn in the flesh be removed from him. And what does God say? No. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul's will and God's will were two different things. Secondly, when there is a contradiction in wills, when my will is different than God's will, then whose will wins? Well, God's will should win every time. This is not about bending God's will to my will. This is about bending my will to God's will. There are times when people say, your will be done, but do they really mean it? Because I think a lot of times we want to do what we want to do and we want God to sign off on it. You hear that sometimes. You make a decision in your life that maybe is unscriptural, immoral, whatever, and you say, well, the Holy Spirit's leading this. No, he's not. You want this. And you want it so badly that you'll bend God's will to your will. That's not how this whole, thing's work. this whole thing works. This is not a tug of war. God always wins. Because God's will is always best. So my will and God's will may be two different things. We need to get that straight from the beginning. God's will always wins, number two. And the reason it always wins, number three, is because his will is always best. We don't know what's best for us. Every time we think we do, we're reminded that we don't. You can look back on decisions in your life and things that you prayed for that you think about now and you say, wow, I'm glad God didn't answer that prayer. Correct? My will and God's will may be two different things. His will must win because God always knows what's best. God would indeed have a temple, but it wouldn't be David who would construct it. And so here we learn another valuable lesson when it comes to seeing God's bigger picture, and that is it isn't God's plan for everyone to build temples. God has different plans for different people. Yes, all of us have the same purpose in that we are to glorify God, but even Paul talks about this, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. God doesn't have the same plan for everyone's life. We all have various gifts 
for various jobs. God made David a king, not a temple builder. God has given us certain gifts that we are to utilize, that that he has deemed sufficient for making the kingdom better. And that brings us to another lesson learned here. God honored David's intentions, even though he didn't allow him to build the temple. Do you notice that? At first glance, God's response may seem like a slap in the face. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, starting in verse 7, it says, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. So God appreciated the sentiment. Thank you, David, for thinking in those terms. But you're not the one that's going to build the temple. Again, his intentions were good. It's just that the timing wasn't. So don't assume that a no answer from God means that you were wrong in praying for it in the first place. Not necessarily. I have a dear friend named Paul Shiro. Many of you know him. He's been here a few times. Paul is one of my heroes in the faith. And Paul and I were together not long ago, and we were sitting down, and we were talking. And he told me about the very first job that he applied for. He had gone to ACC, and he got out of school, and him and his wife, Patsy, had just been married, and they were poor, and he was wanting to serve in ministry. And he finds a church in Sherman, Texas, and he goes up there. They're looking for a song leader and a youth minister. You ever heard Paul sing? It's not a good thing. He would even say that. But he went anyway, and he led worship that morning as he sang, and he sang as good as he could. Then he talked to the youth, and he taught a class, and he got done, and he sat down with the elders, and the elders said, you know, Paul, uh, we appreciate your efforts. We're going to go in a different direction. And he went out to the car, and he, he sat down, and he started boohooing, and his wife, Patsy, looked at him, and she said, was this your dream job? And he said, well, no. And she said, well, then let's go get the job you want. You know, sometimes we pray so hard that God give us something, and then when he says no... We're upset and we think life is over. It could have been very easy for Paul at that point to say, you know what, I'm done with ministry. God obviously is not going to help me out here, so I'm done. He's been at the same church in San Angelo for over 40 years. I think it worked out for him. We don't know what's best for us. And every time we think we do, we're reminded that we don't. I want you to notice David's response to no, because I think it speaks volumes to us. First of all, I want you to notice that his first move was to go to God, not away from him. In our selfishness, in our pettiness, a lot of times our first move is to say, well, if God's not going to answer this prayer, then I'm done. But David's first move is to go toward God, not away from him. Verse 18 of 2 Samuel 7, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? David wasn't going to let the disappointment of the moment turn him away from God. Though he didn't fully comprehend why his good intentions weren't fulfilled, he trusted enough to stay. And years later, David's son Solomon would write this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. That's exactly what David did. And what an example that is for us. Now, the second thing we see in David's response is that he acknowledged God's sovereignty and his right to decide what is best. Did you catch that? Who am I, he says, and what is my house? that you have brought me this far. 
I mean, David is basically saying, I don't deserve any of this. So if you say no, that's fine. Because obviously, I've made a mess of my life at times. Right? I mean, David knew all about the messes that come from self-affliction. It reminds me of what's written in Romans 9.20. It says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? That's what I was talking about a little, a little bit ago. We forget who is the clay and, and, and who is the molder and shaper, don't we? Many times we want to be the molder and shaper and we want to mold and shape God into our own image or fit him into our plans. And we can't forget who the actual molder and shaper is. You're the Play-Doh and he's the one who's making something great out of it. It's not the other way around. And so we trust in God that what he is going to create is going to be good. Also notice that David acknowledged the magnitude of God's wisdom compared to his own. Verses 19 through 21, it says, And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. In essence, David says, the Father knows best. You know best, God. Even though I can't figure it all out, even though I may not understand it, even though it may seem like sometimes everything's in chaos and, and, and needs to be set in order, God, you are in control. You know what's best, and I trust you because your plan is always the right plan. I want you to also notice that David praised rather than pouted. This is important. Because if we're honest, a lot of times we'd rather pout than praise. Verses 22 and following. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever and you, O Lord, have become their God. You know, think about Paul and Silas here. You know, they preached their hearts out and they were beaten they were flogged they were arrested they were thrown in prison and what did they do at midnight they sang what causes one to be able to sing at midnight while locked in a prison cell can you sing when your dream dies can you sing when everything is against you can you rejoice at midnight even though God answers with a no Notice that David responds to disappointment by accepting God's will and not fighting it. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken. As I said, many pray your will be done. But do we live that, that phrase? Do we... Do we live as people of action who say your will be done and then accept whatever that will is it sounds good it sounds churchy it sounds pious but do we really live it do we really believe it do we mean it when we say your will be done and that will takes us in an opposite direction 
I think many times we're just hoping that God signs off on our will or that he confirms our will. But David took the Lord's no answer and he accepted it as the right answer because it came from an omniscient God. The God who knows all has got to know what's best, right? The guy, the guy that sees that our, our life as a span has got to know what's right. Obviously, God knows what he's doing, and David accepted that. And finally, notice that David found contentment within the realm of what God did allow. Look at this time at 1 Chronicles 22. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the clamps and more bronze than, than could be weighed and timbers of cedar logs beyond number for the Sidonians and, and Tyrians brought large quantities of cedar timber to David. David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all the lands. Therefore, now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. Do you see what's going on here? David wanted so badly to build a house for God. God said no. And you know what David did? He said, okay, well then where can I help? I still want to be a part of the plan. Let me help gather the materials. Let me help with the preparations. This is so foreign to what we see in our world and even in the church. Well, if I can't be ahead of the program, then I'm not doing it. Now, if I, I, if I can't do it every way that I want to do it, then, then I'm not going to be a part of it. If you're not going to let me run the program, then I don't want anything to do with it. That's how we act so often. David took God's no and he said, okay, well, then I can do this. I'll just rework my plan a little bit. I'll rework the vision. Okay, I can't build a temple, so I'll help gather the materials to build the temple. No sweat. I'll just dig in where I can. What an attitude, right? What an attitude that we can learn from. If I can't be the head of it, I can still be involved. Even though I may not be able to lead the ministry, I can still help in some way. Even though the elders say, well, that's a great idea, but we'd rather kind of work it this way. I don't throw my hands up and pout and sulk. I say, okay, that sounds good. I can work with that. There is always plenty to do. Even after God says no. There was a, an elderly woman who seemed to worry about every single thing in her life. I mean, she'd, she'd get past one thing and worry about something else. She was a worry wart to an extreme. The point, she, she was having stomach issues, and, and the things she was worrying about were not even things that the normal person would worry about. There's nothing she could do to change these things. She just had to worry about them. And her family tried to talk some sense into her. And she said, but if I don't worry about it, what am I going to do? And her family said, well, you're just going to have to turn it over to God. You're just going to have to pray about it and turn it over to God. And she said, oh my goodness, is that what it's come to? <laughs> Folks, let me tell you, that's what it always comes down to. Always. You can only do so much. 
God is in control. Let him be in control. Let him have the last word. And instead of allowing that to discourage you, allow that to prompt you to bend your will to his will, to say, whatever your will is, God, I know it's best. Because all of this comes down to trust, doesn't it? Trusting in God to lead the way, knowing that whatever way he leads you is going to be best anyway. It always comes down to that. It always comes down to succumbing to the will of God and allowing him to be in control. I think David gives us some really good lessons here. A man who was a hero at one point, a man who was at the top of the food chain, a king who had rock star status as he walked through town in the parade holding the head of Goliath. But here we see his humility. And I think more and more people in our world, not just Christians, but in our world in general, need to realize there is a king on the throne. Whether you like it or not, there is a king on the throne, and he is in control whether you like it or not. And his will is going to win out whether you like it or not. So just acquiesce to his will. Let him be in control. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we've had to come together to worship you, to be here as a family. We thank you for our family. We love this family. We appreciate so much the blessings you bestow upon this family. Help us to grow and mature. Help us to be people after your own heart, God. Help us to be humble servants. And help us to bend our will to your will always. To point to you and say, your will is best. Show it to me. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Dave's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you tonight in some way, we'd love to. We say it quite often. There's no good reason to leave here tonight without being right with God. Come as we stand and as we sing.